You're listening to sermons from St. Macarios the Great, Orthodox Mission in Hyde Park. In the 1970s, at Princeton University in New Jersey, two psychologists, um, their names are John Darley and Daniel Batson, they got this idea for an experiment. They wanted to study pro-social behavior. Why do people do good things for others? Why do they act with kindness or with mercy? with goodness towards other people that they meet. And so they had a couple of hypotheses that they wanted to test. Number one, they thought that people who were thinking religious or ethical thoughts would be more likely to offer assistance to somebody in need. The second hypothesis they wanted to test was that people in a hurry, they thought, would be less likely to offer any assistance. And the third one was that people who were religious for extrinsic reasons, meaning what they might gain or as a means to some end, would be less likely to offer assistance than those who were religious for intrinsic reasons, for its own sake, or as an end in itself. So these psychologists gathered a bunch of seminarians from uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, people the researchers figured would know something about goodness, kindness, mercy, good religious people who were, after all, training to be priests and pastors and religious educators and lay workers in the church. And so over the course of several days, the researchers put these seminarians to the test. They were told that they were going to be participating in a study on religious education. And so on the first day, the seminarians came in. They were given personality tests to try and differentiate those who practice their religion for intrinsic versus extrinsic reasons. And then on the second day, they were brought in. The seminarians were told to prepare a talk. It was either a talk on job opportunities, for seminary graduates. Very short talk, I'm sure. Uh, and also, I talk, the other group was told to prepare a talk on the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so once these seminarians had prepared their given talks, they were told that because of limited space in the building they were in, they would have to go somewhere else to give this presentation or be recorded. And so they were told, one group, that they were early, there's plenty of time, but you should go over and head over that way anyways. Uh, and if you're a little bit early, it'll only be a couple minutes before you can do the presentation. A second group was told, oh, you know what, you're expected right now, you better head over right away. And then a third group was told, oh no, you're a few minutes late already, you better hurry over there. So this is where the twist comes in. You see, the researchers 
had ensured that the pathway the seminarians would take to the other building would lead them through a narrow alleyway, only a few feet wide. And in this alleyway would be a man slumped on the ground in a doorway, head bowed down in silence. And as the seminarians approached, the man would talk two times and groan. Somewhat ambiguous, but certainly a level of distress is shown in this man's behavior. So you think this might ring a few bells, especially for those seminarians who are tasked with speaking on this parable of the Good Samaritan. What do you think those seminarians did? You think they stopped to help the man? Now, some of them did, a percentage of them, to varying degrees, but the majority, over 60% of the seminarians, failed to offer any assistance whatsoever. And that ranged from anything from telling somebody about this man when they got to the other building, to refusing to leave him and insisting to bring him to the infirmary. Over 60% failed to offer any assistance. Some of them literally stepped over that man as they were walking to go give their talk on this parable. And amazingly, only 10%, 10% of those who felt they were in a great hurry offered any help. Now, I don't want to draw any grand conclusion from this psychological experiment, other than to note that mercy is often an easy thing to preach on, or an easy thing to think about, can be an easy thing to encourage, seldom easy to live. It's with some fear and trembling that I proceed. Because mercy is precisely what our Lord is inviting us into this morning in this parable. If I were to summarize its meaning in one sentence, it would be this. Anyone capable of mercy is capable of salvation. See, this parable really revolves around two questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Ask the lawyer. And then secondly, in an attempt to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Of course, in response to that first question, our Lord draws out from the lawyer the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in response to that second question, our Lord tells the lawyer this parable. A rather shocking parable. Because the priest and the Levite, you know, the, the good religious people, the ones who have the orthodox beliefs and the correct worship, they worship God in the temple, are the negative examples. While the Samaritan, who holds heterodox beliefs, and worships from the Jewish perspective in the wrong temple on Mount Gerizim, proves his love of God and his true worship 
through his love of his neighbor. Through his act of mercy. It's a bit like the epistle of St. James tells us. Someone might say, you have faith and I have deeds. But demonstrate your faith to me without deeds, and I will demonstrate my faith to you violently. Anyone capable of mercy is capable of salvation. This is how our Lord defines what true faith looks like. True love of God, true love of neighbor are shown by our mercy. It relates to one of our Lord's favorite quotations from the Old Testament, from the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So this morning, I want to look at three aspects of this mercy that our Lord is inviting us into this morning. And it is an invitation. It's an invitation to mercy as a way that can transform the way that we live. It can transform the way that we see the world. It can transform the way that we relate to one another. Transform our lives and our community. So number one, mercy transgresses every boundary because the love of neighbor knows no bounds. You may or may not know the Jews and the Samaritans did not exactly get along. See, the Jews believed the Samaritans were people of questionable descent and inadequate theology. In terms of descent, the Jews believed the Samaritans were descendants of an intermixing of peoples caused by the Assyrian Empire. In the 8th century, when the Assyrian Empire came and conquered the northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes, the Assyrian practice at that time was to take the people that they had conquered and send them throughout the empire and scatter them around and mix them up so they could completely destroy their identity and assimilate. The Jews believed the Samaritans were the result of this colonial project, this intermixing of peoples brought on by the Assyrians. Questionable descent, questionable heritage, lineage. And then secondly, they had inadequate theology. They only accepted the Torah, they had their own Torah, in fact, their own five books of Moses, Samaritan Pentateuch. And well, that might be not, might not be too egregious. After all, the Sadducees only accepted the Torah as well. But on top of that, they worshipped God not in Jerusalem, but on another mountain at a different temple, Mount Gerizim. So this shows the radicality of this choice by our Lord. As I said before, it's heterodox individual who worships God in the wrong place is the one who shows mercy. Shows, as I said, that mercy transgresses every boundary. It transgresses every racial and ethnic boundary because the love of neighbor not be limited to our own racial or ethnic roots. 
why racism, ethnophilism can have no place in Christian faith. It doesn't recognize national boundaries. Mercy transgresses national boundaries. Because the love of neighbor does not stop where imaginary lines are drawn on maps. It's like hatred of immigrants to other countries or other peoples and have no place in Christian faith. Mercy transgresses every religious boundary. Love of neighbor is not limited to those who share our religious beliefs. Mercy transgresses every political boundary. Love of neighbor is not limited to those who share our politics. Mercy transgresses every class distinction. Love of neighbor is not limited to those who share our economic makeup. Number two, mercy is expressed in concrete, specific, and embodied acts of love. In other words, mercy cannot be mere sentimental feelings of goodwill. There's an opposite illustration of this in Book 2, Chapter 4 of Dostoevsky's classic novel, The Brothers Karamazov. In that chapter, you can go home and, and, and read it, I recommend it. It's a wonderful chapter. Elder Dosima is speaking with a woman named Lisa. And he tells the story of a doctor that he met. And this is what the doctor said. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, I often make plans for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually face crucifixion if it were suddenly necessary. Yet I'm incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. I know from experience, as soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me. It restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One because he is too long over his dinner, another because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it always happens that the more I hate men individually, the more I love man, or the more I love humanity. Quite a contradiction. Mercy and the love of neighbor, as Elder Dosima says in that chapter, must be expressed in active love. The doctor could imagine Abstract acts of mercy and love. That's easy. We can all live in our heads. But in the real world, we fall only hate. The Samaritan, on the other hand, expressed mercy through specific, concrete acts of embodied love. Bandaging the wounds. Pouring on oil and wine. Putting the wounded man on his own animal. Pain for his convalescence. The embodied love began for the Samaritan by seeing the world clearly, seeing the world clearly through mercy. 
He didn't rationalize or naturalize or otherwise explain away what he encountered. Mercy gave the Samaritan clear vision, which enabled him to see the man in need and embody that vision of mercy in active love. Finally, number three. Mercy creates relationships of solidarity. To express mercy with the love of our neighbor is not to act with paternalism or condescension. It's not crass charity or a handout. Mercy invites a sharing of life. Mercy invites us into solidarity with one another. Because you cannot be a neighbor alone. I am neighbor to you, and you are neighbor to me. This is what love means. A mutuality, a sharing of life together, is part and parcel of mercy. It creates relationships among subjects. Never treats others as objects. This is what happened with the Samaritan. He did not merely offer help, but formed a relationship that would continue. Yes, he had to leave to go about his business, but he would be back. The relationship would continue. He planned his return. And solidarity was formed between those two. They became neighbors to each other. Anyone capable of mercy is capable of salvation. This is what our Lord is inviting us into this morning. To allow his mercy to transform us into people of mercy. To become people who transgress boundaries. To become people of mercy who embody it in active love. To become people of mercy who create relationships of mutuality and solidarity with one another. Thus, we will show, thus we will show both our love of God and our love of neighbor as we show mercy. Amen. Yeah.